This is Fine, episode 1.7. How deep is your state? Hi, this is Jeremy. And I'm Jerry. And we're going to talk about the deep state today. We're going to talk about it in relative terms. So the deep state as it's typically understood in places like Turkey. The deep state as people are calling it now in our recent misadventurous U.S., And I also want to look at the actions of the CIA around the world, one of the reasons that I think the deep state actually isn't best applied to the U.S. Um, But maybe we should start where it all began, in Turkey. Right. So so the the term deep state kind of, uh, it it originates from the history of the Turkish civilian government vis-a-vis like the Turkish military government. You know, Turkey for a long time has been sort of nominally a constitutional republic, but uh, it has also experienced multiple military coups. So how can that be? Um, well, part of that is because sort of historically the military sees itself as this protector of uh, secular values and, and whatever. And I cannot like I, I'm not, I think, sufficiently enough of a scholar of Turkey to say to what extent that's actually true. It's sort of that that sort of that logic has seemed to have fallen by the wayside recently. But in any case, uh, the military multiple times has taken it upon itself to sort of overthrow the Turkish civilian government and then kind of retreat into the background, if you will, once the new government that has kind of that came to replace it, you know, was deemed to be sufficiently acceptable. That's right. And I think it's sort of a a falling off from early Ataturkism, right? So, you know, Ataturk creates modern secular Turkey and then these elements of the military have viewed themselves as the as the preservers of that since then. But of course, you know, Ataturk uh, established this close to 100 years ago, 1923, I believe, is when the uh, secular state in Turkey was established by Ataturk. Whereas, you know, the most recent military coup was 1997. So none of the same people are working. This is more um, oftentimes criminal organizations paired with the military. Sort of, I, I think the it's very right to say that the original preservers of constitutional order is not exactly what's going on when the deep state acts in Turkey now. And maybe the best example of that is actually that the current prime minister of Turkey, um, Erdogan, was arrested in 1999. And I'm actually going to read the poem he was arrested for, because reading a four-line poem is exactly what gets you sent to prison in a real deep state. In December 1997, Erdogan went to the city of Sirt, which I believe now is actually a primary uh, recruiting location for ISIL. But, and he read aloud this poem, The mosques are our barracks, the domes are helmets, the minarets are bayonets, and the faithful are soldiers. So this was written actually by a famous secular Turkish poet in 1912 named Zia Gokalp. Never heard of this person. Uh, I'll be honest, I'm not a Turkish domain expert. Uh, and he was charged for reading that four-line poem with incitement of religious hatred and sentenced to 10 months in prison. So that, ladies and gents, is like a real deep state. Like when they want to take out a popular uh, politician, he was the mayor of Istanbul at the time, pretty much anything is a pretext. And since we're talking about the 1997 coup, I mean, the sort of the deep state, I think, first came to the consciousness of people who are not Turkey scholars with an assassination attempt, I believe. I can't remember whether he was a foreign minister or some kind. He was like some kind of minister in the government. And there was an assassination attempt on him in 1996. It became pretty clear that the people who were responsible for this assassination attempt were uh, connected to the Turkish military. And it was kind of like, whoa, what's going on here? Not that I think... You know, again, people had had this experience of the Turkish military stepping in to overthrow the various uh, previous Turkish governments, but this was a kind of this very clear connection to a kind of, you know, why do we call this a deep state? Because it, it it's a organization that exists sort of beneath the level of public notice until it does something like try to take out a government minister. That's right. And by take out, it's not, say, leak damning documents about, right, exactly. it's try and assassinate. And indeed, in, in the 1997 coup, and I, I'm referring here extensively to a great article just entitled The Deep State in The New Yorker by Dexter Filkins. But basically, in, in that coup, you know, what do they do? They ban uh, the party of the prime minister at the time, who was this guy named Erbakan, um, who was a moderate Islamist. They banned his party, which was called the Welfare Party. They banned three other Islamist parties. 
Um, I believe they actually banned a Kurdish party just to show that they were like friends to no one. Um, and then, you know, they sort of backed off and they're like, okay, now you can have elections again. Um, and I think this is, whatever you could say about it, profoundly undemocratic and also operating within um, just realms of not only using the state, so using the state to do things like lock up people for sedition, basically for reading poems, banning political parties, but going in these extrajudicial and extra state uh, matters like the attempted assassinations, um, the planting of uh, basically like the Turkish version of Kompromat um, on people, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that this is something that really needs to be kept in mind when we talk about the deep state, you know, in relation to American politics, uh, because, you know, what we mean, I think, when we talk about it here is certainly not the same as what it meant in the original. And so should we, we should be conscious of that, that there's, there's been this maybe elision of exactly what this means, it, you know, from the original context. So. We are not yet at the stage where the FBI is literally assassinating people uh, just, you know, within the borders of uh, of the country. Although the CIA, you know, has uh, has kind of gotten there, more or less. Well, wait, um, but not within the U.S. Itself. Not within the borders of the country and, that and we actually, know of. I think after we move through the U.S., maybe, maybe we'll take my point three second. I, I think that's almost why... Um, the excess of unconstitutional energies has been spent outside the United States borders. And I think that's actually one of the things that may have protected our democracy is that uh, maybe you know, yeah. the, the bastards were, were trying to do regime ch- change elsewhere. Um, there's an academic whose name I'm going to murder. So my apologies uh, to her. But uh, Zeynep Tufeksi, I believe. Um, Tufeshi, I don't know. I apologize. I don't speak Turkish. Her her take on this, she has a very funny and wonderful tweet storm, uh, which maybe the Facebook page for This Is Fine will link to. But she said, look, if the State Department teams up with Tony Soprano to create a terror, in quotes, attack to blame the administration for, that's the deep state a la Turkey, which I think is sort of a great summation of like what the you know state of play is. Right. So in it's interesting because I think that the concept itself of, you know, this deep state idea, I think it's very applicable in general, not in the specifics, obviously, uh, as they're applicable in Turkey. But uh, in general, I think it's quite applicable to the American context as well, in the sense that there is this organizational structure that exists to some level beneath public notice, although not entirely, and that operates largely uh, based on goals and values and institutional imperatives that it sets for itself and that are not necessarily set for it by, you know, the normal democratic process. And we actually, we talked about this in the foreign policy episode. Yeah, exactly. Right. So this is, and, and I think that these things are connected. Uh, they're connected in the sense, in, I think, a very direct sense in that these are oftentimes the very same people because they move between law enforcement agencies and foreign intelligence intelligence agencies and agencies that are involved in just, again, just setting U.S. policy abroad, right? So so there's a great deal of mixture among all of these organizations. And to be fair, it's hard to have democratic accountability in your foreign intelligence or law enforcement uh, agencies. And I I think there's a a reason that the founders have an independent judicial branch and reserve most of the powers to foreign policy to the executive. Although, I think that the tendency of the deep state and the foreign policy establishment to both diverge from any uh, democratic control has become really pronounced in the 20th century. And that's basically when, in the U.S. at least, there's been an agreement by the executive and the legislature to basically have legislative abdication over the basic checks that the legislature did have on foreign policy, that mostly being, for example, the treaty power and uh, the execution of wars. Um, you know, the military action is now basically done by the executive without any oversight by the legislature. And so there's sort of been a further winnowing of that democratic oversight, at least in the United States. In in many other countries, there never is any legislative oversight or democratic oversight of of that foreign policy power. And I guess in in many other states, Turkey is one that we've been talking about a lot, but where a deep state might be more applicable, you might have extrajudicial in the in the truest sense of the word um, control of the apparatus of power by senior figures in that establishment and um, you know I'm thinking of um, Peru under Fujimori or like really any time when a security state runs the place and and is it like can at will sort of take out legislators like that that's sort of a real deep state this is actually a very interesting point that uh, connects to something that I wanted to say which is that one of the interesting things about the American deep state is 
its interaction with the, you know, what I'll call the civilian or the, uh, you know, the normal constitutional state, which is that unlike, for example, in Turkey and unlike in uh, a number of Latin American countries, the American deep state has never actually wanted to run America. In fact, it like very much doesn't, I get the feeling that it very much doesn't want to run America, but it wants to be in some ways left alone to act on the imperatives that it sees you know, that it sees itself as responding to. So it's it's kind of, it has this kind of, not even parasitic, but more like an epiphytic relationship with the uh, the body of the American state. It doesn't want to collect taxes and administer the EPA, but it definitely wants to occupy this very important role in decision-making, at least as far as the decision-making concerns what it's allowed to and not allowed to do. And, and actually, it's interesting, but the times when the deep state is most overreached and then slapped back by um, American civic society, I think are the ones in which it has tried to engage with who it is that is ruling, roughly. I mean, you, you think about uh, Hoover and you think about the um, witch hunt, communist witch hunts uh, under McCarthy. And what's interesting is that obviously there was a, a, a lot of tolerated anti-communism throughout American government. But when... That started to go after both elected officials and also army officers. All of a sudden, there was this huge pushback. It was like, whoa, 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 like you know, keep your keep your paranoia epiphytic or outside of the U.S. Um, you know, I think actually it was probably, um, although I, I don't mean to minimize the uh, impact of uh, anti-communism on, on many people's lives in the fifties. Um, certainly, the CIA was far more willing to use um, extrajudicial violence against let's say, moderate socialists abroad than they were against moderate socialists in the United States. But it is but it is interesting. I mean, that we it, it's good to mention the FBI here because I think that the FBI is in some ways sort of the original, original deep state. There's a great book out there by a journalist by the name of Tim Weiner. Uh, the book is called Enemies, A History of the FBI. Um, it's really fascinating. Like if you're interested in this kind of thing, you should definitely read it. It's roughly split into two parts. One, one is sort of like the the era of Hoover, and everything else is sort of like post Hoover. Uh, but the important thing about the Hoover era was that the FBI was behaved in, in an incredibly lawless manner under Hoover for many, many years. I mean, literal decades. And the thing that it saved it from, you know, being actually reigned in was the fact that, first of all, it was strongly, Hoover did a really good job of cultivating relationships with presidents. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was a huge fan of, uh, of Hoover. And the second thing was that it actually also collected compromising material on its own, like on like members of Congress and uh, senators and stuff. A lot, and, and it was doing things like, you know, breaking wiretapping laws that you know, by tapping people that it was not supposed to tap and all this kind of stuff. And basically the thing that kind of kept it from all breaking out into the open was the force of Hoover's personality and the fact that his him being director for so long, by the time that these concerns were coming to the fore, you know, he was still able to sort of keep an, keep a lid on all of this stuff just by virtue of being who he was. And then so, he just died. So, so I do, I, again, I don't mean to minimize <laughs> no, no, Hoover's but, actions. And, and look, I mean, there was a file on Martin Luther King, but also there was a file on RFK. So, oh, yeah, so, so right. Absolutely. Like, there, that's problematic. But I think one of the things that, again, I want to distinguish, and, and I know there may be pod listeners who are saying, you know, Deep State originally started with the FBI and COINTELPRO, just as Jerry's saying here, like, don't don't tie this all to foreign countries. But Hoover never used those files to remove sitting politicians. I mean, maybe there were some implicit blackmail and some minor figures. But, like, I actually think that's sort of interesting. Like, you you don't have an attempt to affect domestic policy by removing elected officials, even though you do have files on pretty much everyone. Right, right. I think that there was, you know, probably even under Hoover, there was a different conception sort of of what these state security organs were for. I think it would have been very difficult for Hoover to, and, and Hoover was operating under, you know, different constraints than like Turkish generals were operating under. Garter uh, belts for one. What's that? I said garter belts <laughs> right, for one. Right, exactly. Uh, it's, you know, it's it, it would be much, it was much easier for, you know, a general in charge of the army to step in and say, we're going to do things my way now. Right. Whereas, uh, you know, Hoover definitely had to be 
circumspect about the what he was doing and the way he was doing it. The FBI itself was not then certainly particularly large. Um, it had limited resources at its disposal. It had to use those resources in kind of a in what it thought was sort of the wisest manner possible. Uh, that included, for example, like just like breaking into people's homes and stealing their private documents, which was a thing that was done a lot. Um, but it was not like it would not have been would not have made much sense for the FBI to engage in like an all out confrontation with the civilian democracy. And I think that that is the reason why I bring that up is because I think Hoover was smart enough to know that, like that's why he never broke out into open conflict. And I think that the pattern that he set uh, by sort of keeping the FBI from, you know, engaging in open warfare with uh, elected politicians that didn't like uh, was something that persisted for a long time and persists to this day. I mean, we're seeing what we're seeing right now is this weird situation where different factions within the FBI are leaking different things for reasons that are very hard to understand, but they're obviously not like just outright revolting and like arresting people left and right, because that is not something that would be tolerated even like in our bizarre circumstances that we live in. So Right. And and I think there's this interesting sort of thing. I, I was saying on Facebook earlier today that our intelligence services had a habit of acting unconstitutionally but trying to limit their unlawful behavior, which is this funny sort of thing. But I think that like there's a lot of self-serving legal memoranda trying to justify unconstitutional behavior of our intelligence services on on in domestic soil, which is why I think, for example, the Obama accusation that he personally ordered a wiretap is ridiculous. Like the Obama would never be caught dead doing such a thing. Now, I'm sure that there is unlawful surveillance of U.S. citizens, but I'm also sure that there's a like beautiful OLC memo oh, dictating absolutely. why that unlawful absolutely. surveillance is I, permitted. I think that this is this is a, one of the you know these interesting phenomena, which is that everything has to be justified by you know a memo somewhere, and there has to be some paper trail, even when it would be better for there not to be a paper trail. But this is this is actually this distinction between law and and a criminal element that I find fascinating because again, where do you find the U.S. deep state behaving like a deep state overseas? You have gladios, for example, who are you know basically elements uh, uh, left anti-communist elements that are are openly working with organized crime elements and also weirdly policing elements throughout southern uh, Europe, for example, um, you know, in, in, and and also including in Turkey. And I, I mean, I think this is a really sort of fascinating thing when you are off U.S. soil and therefore no longer have the legal justification and maybe also the specter of communism's closer. Um, the types of affiliations that were built in, you know, you can say what you will about Hoover and organized crime, but like Hoover was never like running organized crime. Whereas, for example, in Italy, you definitely have post-World War II, like CIA didn't care if it was working oh, with, with sure, organized crime, criminal elements. Absolutely like, not. Right. As long as they were anti-communists. So. But what's interesting is that I think that when you talk about what organizations like the CIA, for example, do uh, abroad, it to me, it doesn't quite make as much sense to call it. Well, it's a deep state, but it's a deep state for us in the sense that we don't have much exposure to what's actually going on. We don't it doesn't, again, rise to the level of public recognition unless, you know, an event like. Uh, the Snowden leaks happens or something like that, or right. Abu Ghraib, right? Those are the kinds of things that attract public attention. But then when you act abroad, like you're acting outside of sort of constitutional boundaries because those boundaries just don't even exist. And so the question of like, what it is, is it that the CIA is doing in Italy or Central America or whatever, it's it becomes less of a legal question because like those legal constraints become a lot murkier and more of just like a moral question, right? It's but, like it's bad to you know sell guns to the Contras, right? But, but actually, but I think this is a really interesting point because you know I, I'm looking here at a, a list of uh, coups the U.S. was involved with overseas, and I, I'm going to run them down because it's kind of funny. Um, so just between. Uh, Iran and Masadak in 53, and let's just go up to Allende in Chile. 
Iran, 53, Guatemala, 54, Syria, 56, Congo, 60, Cuba, Bay of Pig, 61, Dominican Republic, 61, South Vietnam, 63, Bolivia, 64, Brazil, 64, Ghana, 66, Bolivia again, 1971, <laughs> and then Chile. So, I mean, I think there's a really fascinating thing there, which is these people are not concerned with, um, let's say, a certain type of, uh, you know, international legality. But they do, and and I and Jerry went so far as to say morality, and I think that's probably right. Like, I think that they viewed themselves as being outside of moral law to a certain extent as well in, in what they were doing in these countries. Um, they had a, a higher mission, and that higher mission was certainly not an, an ethical principle. So what is it that made them follow that on shore? Because I think this is actually fascinating. Like, we have a state that participated in, I don't know, a dozen uh, coups, literally in a 20-year period, and then, you know, obviously more in the 80s. Um, and yet, in the U.S., through a time of tremendous social tumult, um, when, yes, there was domestic surveillance on on people on the left and people on the right alike, but they weren't these methods that they were applying overseas, um, these, these sort of uh, radically undemocratic and anti-constitutional methods stopped at the shore's edge. And, and maybe we have some old uh, weathermen who disagree, but I think largely stopped at, at the at water's edge. Yeah, I, I think that to, to me, that's I think that that is the sort of that is the carryover of this Hoover legacy. I mean, it's it's I find it hard to talk about sort of this the state security agencies without talking about those origins, because. Mm-hmm. You know, he was there for so long, and uh, the is funny, just like a bit of minutia, which is that Hoover absolutely hated the CIA. I mean, the CIA was like almost as bad as the communists because that was it was a turf war, and the people who were originally hired, you know, the, to staff the CIA, he considered them to be like wildly irresponsible, not in like a, a moral sense, but just like that they were just people who didn't know what they were doing. And so he thought they were amateurs and idiots and just uh, he fought with them, I think, for, you know, ever since the founding CIA until of the CIA until he died. He was just absolutely at loggerheads with them in in this like long term power struggle. So that's very that's kind of just this amusing bit of uh, trivia. But but I think it does sort of go back to this idea that you can't in a in a country the size of the U.S., and with kind of the traditions that the U.S. had, it would be, would have been very difficult to wage like outright war on people just because you really risked alienating, I think, a large part of the establishment, uh, uh, not just the establishment, but the populace as well, if you ended up doing that. And I think at some point they just realized that you actually didn't need to do it because the powers that they had at their disposal were already they, they were already pretty broad anyway and they mostly sufficed to achieve the objectives that they wanted to achieve and it was just much easier if if uh the president is going to bat for you um when you don't have to like explain why you you know why you're torturing whatever college students or something like that like right. you know let's and, say the mexican army did and and we can say actually that maybe the accidents of history helped us out too so you know, in 68, the the year of sort of death for American liberalism, Martin Luther King is shot, um, Bobby Kennedy is shot, and then, of course, um, Nixon's elected. And I do actually wonder what the antagonism of the FBI might have been to a more liberal state. But, of course, it was sort of like, you know, what could be better than having Nixon president and, and you know, the sort of silent majority win? I don't, I, like, there's a so maybe there's a counterfactual too that that um, the FBI never was was stretched. We should probably talk about the Church Committee though, because the Church Committee does Definitely. come about basically, you know, once Hoover dies, right? Um, and I, I'm just looking at this now because I had forgotten Hoover was. Uh, you alluded to this, but Hoover was in charge of the FBI for close to 40 years. That's correct. Which yes. is an unbelievable. I mean, I yeah, think Jim he, Comey's been he was there for appointed, a while. I think, by Palmer, by Mitchell Palmer, in like the 20s or something like that, in like 21 or something like that. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's just it's amazing. Yeah, he, he's he's director of the Bureau of Investigation, if you trust Wikipedia, for uh, from 1924 uh, to 35. And then when okay. and then when the FBI is founded from 1935 to 1972. So I mean, that's, that's pretty unbelievable for 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 that that stretch. But once once Hoover's reign ends, um, and COINTELPRO, which was a sort of limited uh, surveillance of uh, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. left and, and other uh, sorts of uh, people that the FBI viewed as disreputable um, came to light. 
there was a series of, of hearings, which then led to what this thing called the Church Commission, which was set up by a liberal Republican, progressive Republican senator from Idaho, uh, Frank Church. But, but by the way, I believe that I speak saying this off the top of my head, so I haven't checked this, but I believe that the story about the like the COINTELPRO stuff leaking was that some activist just like burgled an FBI field office and found this information and then just like mailed it to to a bunch of newspapers. And that's how this came to light. So it was definitely not like fait accompli that it, this was this was going to come out. Uh, but the church committee sort of investigated this question of domestic spying and uh, the limits on things like wiretapping and all this uh, sort of stuff. And it kind of came to sort of a compromise solution, which is the establishment of this thing called, well, the passage of this act called FISA, which is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And that act established sort of, you know, basically said, like, you can't like spy on people without a warrant. You can't like wiretap them. But uh, there are these special courts that you can go to and they will give you a special warrant, you know, if you think that you have like a really good reason for uh, conducting surveillance on these people because they're foreign terrorists or because they're whatever they are. Right. Any suspected agent of a foreign power or Indeed. someone coming in contact with with a foreign power. You know, FISA is a, a pretty important check on the government's power to surveil, uh, especially on U.S. soil. Now, I should say that saying that FISA uh, requests for FISA surveillance warrants are are almost never rejected. So it is uh, its oversight has been challenged by by many as, as whether it is sufficient oversight. But suffice to say, it has been rejected several times and oftentimes before a request for surveillance is approved, it's modified to limit it in scope or for the federal government to gather more data through legal means. And I, I'm sorry, I, I mispartied uh, Church. He was a Democrat from Idaho. It was so shocking to me in my head that a you know Democrat could be from Idaho that I, uh, that I messed that up. But, uh, but yeah, and, and FISA exists to this day. Uh, and probably many of our listeners will uh, learn about FISA because it appears that the Trump campaign was subject to uh, FISA surveillance last year, or a request for a FISA warrant last year, which again, uh, you know, the president does not order directly. There, there's not like a, uh, that's not how things work in the American system. But what it does mean is that there was suspicion of uh, people in Trump's orbit for uh, talking to uh, a foreign power, being an agent of foreign power, which is a pretty profound, if that reporting is correct, pretty profound charge, actually. Yeah, I <laughs> the thing that sort of baffles me about this whole one of the things that baffles me about this whole story, I guess, is, you know, you think on the one hand, like, if you are a Washington insider, like Jeff Sessions is, and you go to meetings, and you just like go talk to various important people, like it's not crazy that you would end up talking to an ambassador. Like, what's weird is lying about it, right? Like, if you just said like, "Oh yeah, I had lunch with this with the ambassador," uh, you know, we we talked about we just sat around bullshitting for fifteen twenty minutes or something, and like probably nobody would really. I mean, nobody would pin anything on you, but like the fact that they're lying about it is what's weird. And the fact that this was, you know, also the subject of a FISA request is also weird. Yeah, no, it, it's very strange. I mean, you know, they're now to be fair, the the again, the the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which reviews these FISA requests, has only rejected a very small number of thousands of warrant requests. Um, and one of them apparently was actually the first request uh, for surveillance, again, if, if we believe what's been reported out uh, on the Trump campaign. So it, it couldn't have been the, the most uh, they didn't have uh, all of the bag of goods when they when they came in for the initial request. But if the subsequent request was approved, as was stated, it is very interesting. I, I agree. I don't know why uh, Sessions would lie in his testimony about speaking to the ambassador. I don't know why, in general, people in the Trump orbit uh, would do things like lie and say they've never talked to anyone and then tweet about talking to people, which Roger Stone just did. He, his excuse is that he was drunk when he was tweeting, so who hasn't been there? But Lindsey Graham, of all people today, basically said that the president has accused the previous president of illegally wiretapping him, and either that's true, which you know neither Lindsey Graham nor I believe, and that's horrifying— because to wiretap a basically opposing political candidate of the opposing political party is, I think, I mean, it would just be worse than, than almost anything you can imagine. 
But on the other hand, if there were a legal approved warrant for surveillance of a political candidate for possibly being the agent of a foreign power or senior people in his campaign, I, you know, it, it sounds like a conspiracy theory. It sounds like we're talking about a conspiracy theory. And, and here's the difference, again, you know, how deep is our state? One of the reasons we're talking about it like this is because we haven't seen these warrants. We haven't seen the underlying evidence. And I think one of the reasons we haven't um, and, you know, Trump hasn't been whisked away by, uh, you know, Jim Comey to an undisclosed location to be tortured uh, is because we don't have a deep state. We have a sometimes unlawfully acting um, undemocratic law enforcement and foreign intelligence body that are clearly dislike the president, but have sort of extreme limits, actually, that they're willing to abide by. And one of those limits is apparently they're going to leak almost everything, but actually not uh, the fire if there's real fire about this. Well, we don't know that yet, right? What we know is that... Oh, you think that... they're waiting for like sweeps week? <laughs> it's a good question, right? You know, it is, is, is the issue here, right? Like, what is the purpose that these leaks serve, I guess? That is, that's kind of the question, right? Is because like, imagine you have a bunch of information. Dropping all of that information at the same time might certainly, you know, cause some things to catch fire and you know, destroy political careers. But it's also a kind of like really large scale sort of thing that would probably put the security services themselves under very close examination. And it might be much easier to say, like, leak individual tidbits from that stash. You don't want to like give all your show all your cards in, in one, uh, you know, in one sitting. And so maybe you, ha- you you leak one thing, you see if it goes anywhere. You leak another thing, you see if it goes anywhere, and, and so on and so forth. And, like, I will say this, that it's good that, you know, we're not, we haven't descended to the level of, like, you know, people just being kidnapped and tortured, like, just in broad daylight. That's that's positive, I guess, but... This it's, is fine, against torture. <laughs> yeah, we're... <laughs> that's our, our official podcast policy. But also... It's really worrying, I guess, in some ways that you have this security apparatus that, again, acts based on considerations that are known only to the people inside of it. On the one hand, sometimes it decides that it wants to leak information about Trump. And so people who don't like Trump are definitely, you know, more likely to see that as favorable. But other times it does things like all like inappropriately comment on ongoing investigations of uh, of other presidential candidates like uh, like we just saw this summer. You know, people like it when it when it accords with what they the outcomes that they prefer. But it also is a kind of a really dangerous principle because you don't know who's doing what you don't have any way of controlling uh, what is actually going on. And all you know is that like these organizations that, again, I think have really their own rationale for what they do are just like manipulating, you know, they are manipulating the public opinion. They're not. Sure. Uh, but but I, I guess I'd say two things to this. One is you would like there to be transparency about these actions. I think one of the hard things is if they never say anything, you may not find out anything. So the purpose of leaks, all leaks in some sense, especially leaks of classified information, break the law, right? And so many of these, um, you can say that the intelligence services and, and law enforcement agencies in doing so are not just violating some norm, but they're acting unlawfully. But I guess the counterpoint of that is if you didn't have leaks, you wouldn't have any awareness of what the activities of these organizations are doing. So I think there's an argument that it's in the public interest to find out about certain things. No, you're right. They have their own agenda. And I think that the media has to balance what they're being sold and not just sort of put out um, these things as, as press releases. And you're right, especially that they're very dangerous around political campaigns, as we saw last year. But and I'll go back to like, let me defend. I I could not possibly be more angry at at Jim Comey, because I, I do think he cost Clinton the presidency. But I think that something very interesting is going on in that, again, we, yes, I hear the dribs and drabs theory, but I think if they really had the goods on Trump, that we would see different behavior from the FBI. What I think the FBI is trying to do, I would presume, is to get a congressional 
uh, committee or a special prosecutor going. I don't think they want to like be like, oh, and here's all the evidence that you know we were able to gather um, and print it on the front page of the Times because maybe they're saving that for for some future date. Uh, and I I do hear the sort of like let's see where this goes theory. But I what I think they're trying to do is spur the parts of the government that should be acting in this way, that is the legislature or the DOJ, to to act in an independent manner and to try and bring this out to light in a more legitimate way. Because we're not in a campaign season anymore. You know, this campaign season leaks might be inappropriate, but here we are now, and I, I think they're, they're uh, you know, you could, you could convincingly argue, it's like, okay, well, what are, what's the purpose now? I, I think it's to get the information out in a, in a legal way. Um, they're trying to, to impel uh, legislators to act. It could be that. I think it could also be a bit of um, sort of cover your ass because if you keep it under wraps and somebody finds out about it, somebody like, you know, in within the administration, they could quietly kill the investigation. Whereas, you know, now, like you can't quietly do anything. So if what if there's something going on and they want to keep it happening, um, they, you know, now they can sort of at least maintain awareness that something is going on and it'll be difficult to sort of behind the scenes kill it maybe um that's i don't know that i think that's a possible reason for doing it yeah i mean that's the times thesis right that reporting there was a big story obama mm -hmm. administration rushed to preserve intelligence that wasn't give intelligence to the times it was tell the times that all these different agencies had it and were looking at it right so that it couldn't be killed yeah i mean but but again this is sort of like this points to a, I think, a weakness in our constitutional order, which is that the branch that is sort of nominally in charge, not nominally, but like factually <laughs> in charge of, uh, you know, things like investigations of, uh, of, of, the, of this sort is now itself the subject of an investigation. And so when that happens, like, how can you possibly expect any level like how can you expect these entities to all to act independently uh maybe you know maybe jim comey like will decide that it's better to i don't know not to to continue doing whatever he's doing but you have to have a structure that ensures some level of independence but also some like level of reasonable accountability whereas currently what we have is we have a situation where theoretically like the doj could just tell the fbi to not do this and then the FBI would kind of have to not do it because that is how the chain of command works. So, so, so it's troubling from both ends. Like, I'm sure, <laughs> but that's that's is why I keep on invoking the legislature. I'll, I'll note for what's worth that today, um, when we're recording this, which is um, Sunday, March fifth, in case because I, you know, time moves too quickly these days talking about anything involving this administration. But Jim Comey has asked DOJ to publicly reject the president's assertion that Barack Obama ordered the tapping of Trump's phones, which is kind of an amazing thing if you think about it, because Comey's saying, I I assert this, but obviously DOJ is the ones in charge of me, and so I urge them to do it. But of course, it's very weird, because who at DOJ can do that? Because Sessions recused himself. Like, you have an acting AG who's going to say, yes, I wasn't here, but I agree. No, but he was here because there's a holdover from the Oh, that's right, because it's not an appointed person. Yes. Yeah, so, so uh, I forget this guy's name, but... <laughs> right, right, right. So actually, it's it's a little less bizarre, but it's still funny. It's like acting AG who was here during Obama, who nominally reports to Trump, say that your boss was lying, because um, I don't... I, I have said that, but, you know, I want the American public to know from your mouth. It's, it's a... It's, it's parlous times. But the reason I keep on, on talking about the legislature is... I agree we don't have a good mechanism to police these executive agencies, especially when there's interagency or, or presidential conflict. Um, I'm reminded of this great law paper, the president is a they. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that the legislature does is it has the power to open up these commissions, um, which I think are, in fact, more powerful in some ways than a special prosecutorial power. And you think about the Warren Commission, you think about the Church Commission, you think about the 9-11 Commission. Um, there's real precedent for bipartisan investigatory uh, movements by the legislature to to get to the bottom of problems that deeply concern um, Americans. And And honestly, if there was some Russian interference, but it didn't reach the highest levels of the Trump administration, which I actually, as much as I would love Trump to have like been on the phone with Putin plotting Clinton's demise, I don't believe that. I think probably there were some low-level contact that probably was violative of the law. 
But I would love to hear that not from someone in the Trump administration. I'd love to hear that from a bipartisan commission led by, yes, some schmuck like Marco Rubio. Like, you know, that would actually make me or make me feel better about the whole thing. Right. I I think that this is something that um, it's it's been it's been talked about on in a number of different contexts, but basically this idea of the legislative branch sort of abdicating its responsibility for doing anything. Uh, I think this carries over here. Republicans just don't want to investigate Trump. I mean, they like they've said outright, I can't remember, I think this was Rand Paul, who basically just said, like, well, why would we go investigating other Republicans? I'm like, okay, well, you know, that's your that that's where you that's where you are that's what you are committed right. to right uh those are and, and like it's it just you know what can what can you do there's no if if the if government was divided you could you know maybe something would uh would happen but in this situation uh, i i just there's no i don't think there's any there's any chance that like a republican congress is going to launch this investigation no and and unfortunately i mean again I, i'm as much of a hillary stan as anyone else but I, I do think that it is problematic that there was a federal investigation into her uh, email practices during the campaign, um, not because I think it was a serious charge, because, but because in in and of itself politicized these types of investigations. And I, I think that, you know, Democrats would rightly say, well, why would we investigate Hillary? Like, that's so silly, yada, yada, yada. And like, because I'm just trying to imagine someone who says, well, what if the table was turned? And what if Hillary had been elected? And would you be really supporting all of these, you know, deep state, in quotes, uh, leaks against the president? And I hope I again would be calling for the legislature. But 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 in practice, I think it's very difficult because the the parties are not normally opposed. Um, And and I think that that makes it very, very hard. I think one thing to like when we when we talk about these leaks, um, you know, I think probably no leak is more famous than uh, the Watergate leaks. And I think it's interesting to for, to remind people or tell people who don't know this already that the man who leaked like all this Watergate information to Woodward and Bernstein was Mark Felt, mm. who was uh, the second or third, depending on how you rank these things, in command at the FBI. And I think that he was Mark Felt was really pissed about was that he was not made director of the FBI when Hoover died. Like that was his real grievance. And of course, you know, having being where he was in that command structure, he had access to all of this information, which is why he was able to leak it. Uh, and the reason I bring that up is because it's hard to separate all of these manipulations and all of these sort of all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes from like the people the the differing mm. motivations of the people involved. And so it just happened to be the case. Like we sort of maybe got lucky, I guess, uh, during Watergate that there was this conflict that brought somebody who really had no particular reason to want to talk to Woodward and Bernstein, but a situation arose where that person was like driven by other considerations to basically give them this information. Um, that's nice when it happens, but that's not something you can rely on as a method of like policing these, the, what, what these security services do. Right. And my concern here is not so much that, I mean, like it's not so much about the, the leaks themselves, but again, about what they represent and the fact that people seem to be relying on them to do the work that really needs to be done by something else. It needs the work that needs to be done by Congress, by some kind of independent commission. But it has to be like, you know, it has to it has to be as out in the open as possible. And it has to like have the appearance of like actual legitimacy. Right. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I fully agree. And I think, I mean, you point to a really important point, which is not only that we were lucky, but also that the motives of the leakers are not, everyone's human. And even if um, the FBI in this case does end up leaking something that ends up bringing down the Trump administration, um, whether or not the most senior people were involved, right, who knows, maybe again, they did it for their particular brand of glory and revenge. And not and not some higher motive. I think you're also pointing to the reason elections are so important. I mean, one of the reasons that I really hope we can take back the House in 2018, although I know that it's very very difficult, perhaps not as difficult difficult as the Senate map, but still deeply gerrymandered, is it starts to give Democrats some power to work, possibly with Republicans in the House, to 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 lead some of these inquiries. Um, but again, I hope they're done in a bipartisan manner. I mean. I, 
I'm not for bipartisanship in most senses, because I think bipartisanship generally is a call for a type of um, centrist, centrist like um, low tax and low benefits policy, like, you know, government for the wealthy, which we kind of already have. But I, I do think bipartisanship is deeply important when you're talking about these norms. I mean, if you're going to go after a sitting president who may have violated the law or people on their staff may have violated the law by during an election talking to a foreign power about hacking their opponent. You know, I worry for our democracy for a lot of reasons. Like we have a madman in charge of it who cares about Arnold Schwarzenegger and believes in conspiracy theories and could start a war with nuclear war with North Korea. Like it's terrifying. But like besides that, I care about our democracy because like I do want the Republican Party to be better actors. And I, I do want I think you need some bipartisan legitimacy to bring Americans together. I don't want Trump to be removed and 50 million Americans to, you know, scream traitor at at Democrats. And I don't want there to be fighting in the streets, you know, like, like, I think it's like, if, if there is some police action taken against the executive, I think it's very, very, very important that Republicans get involved. Um, Because I think it'll be terrifying if it looks like it was just like done by like the CIA and like, I don't know, Democrats in Congress. I, I would be really shocked even if the you know even if Democrats like do take back the house I would I would certainly expect investigations I would be really surprised if um, even if something material came up that it would actually generate an actual legal action against the executive I so think you're taking just, your odds against impeachment I you just can get I just don't see it happening better because, than even odds for impeachment at Ladbrokes I believe right now in the first time. I the reason there are a lot of reasons why I don't think that that is really likely. And, you know, one of those reasons just has to do with the fact that uh, Republicans just really fear their own base. Um, and they're afraid that they'll get eaten alive if they go along with something like that. But also just because I don't actually, I mean, this whole bipartisanship thing, like, I, I yeah, it would be nice if there was like actual equal commitment to you know, these things like the rule of law and all this business. But I, I just like even mm. many Democrats, I think, are only sort of haphazardly committed to it. And I just don't think Republicans are, have any commitment to it at all. I mean, it's just like it's a completely cynical pose that they adopt for electoral purposes. They don't have any like real principles that would would, would bring them to to do this. Like, yeah, I, I mean, for like maybe part. if you could scare them, like maybe if their yeah. political futures depended on it, like sure. I mean, like the thing about you know Watergate is that Republicans didn't really like get on board with Watergate until it was like kind of clear that Nixon had done some really awful things and uh, he was likely to go down, and they didn't want to go down with the ship. So when that became obvious, like there was like, oh, okay, fine, like we'll we'll get on board with this bipartisan effort. Yeah. Uh, plus the fact that you know they didn't control the legislative branches of government. So they kind of, they were, they were kind of backed into a corner by that. I mean, here they just like shrug and say, okay, like, fuck it. We we don't have to do anything. Yeah. I guess I don't disagree with you. And also, again, as I said, I don't think the highest echelon of the Trump campaign was involved in some subordinate. Um, Wow. I'm saying I have faith in Donald Trump, which is terrifying, but I do. I really, I really don't think they were involved. So I actually don't think they'd be brought down by such a thing. I hear you that there's no commitment. I think in the unlikely event, at least to my eye, that evidence did come out through some investigation that there was contact at that high level, I think you could see Republicans turn on him because they have control of Congress, because they've got Pence in line. It's like, great. Now we'll, you know, like they still get everything they want and... Um, again, in the unlikely event that they that there really was evidence of of some something truly nefarious at the top during the campaign, wh- what loyalty do they have to Trump? You know, oh, they don't have any loyalty to him. It's just that they they like I said, they fear him. They fear his yeah. base, the, which is their base too, um, and they fear that the base will turn on them if they do something that they don't like, which is which I think is very reasonable, right? If you again, I, if there was a way to make them fear for their electoral lives, then I think you could count on like some kind of actual action but i think that the thing they fear most is being primaried yeah yeah so. no I, I mean you might be right i guess so we again in 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 most probability spaces i don't think we see this i think uh, let me just offer i think if evidence did come out that pointed to the very top 
and there was some sort of investigation. It was not just a, a leak. It was reasonable. And Republicans refused to go along with it. I think the consequences for civil society would be, if it's even possible to say this in 2017, even more profoundly yeah, bad than Yeah, I, I think also it's important to remember that we have lived through a, a situation where, you know, stuff did come out that pointed, if not to the very top, then the level just below that. And I'm talking about Iran-Contra. sure. And really, and it turns out that, like, nothing happened. I mean, people were convicted, and then George Bush the first just pardoned them all. Like, that's what happened and there were no repercussions for any of these people who no, were involved one of, the, in like, one of them almost served in the uh in the trump white house except that he insulted trump uh who was that uh, Elliot, oh, abrams. Elliot abrams that's Elliot right abrams. Elliot abrams he was gonna get a senior position he was. Uh, despite his uh his involvement but uh but he had said some not nice words about trump yeah so, so, trump so that that ended uh, I wanted to mention a, another book that I was reading, uh, that I just started reading, which I think may shed more light on this, um, and actually dovetails neatly with our discussion of elites uh, in the two episodes ago. Uh, it's this book by a guy named Mike Lofgren, who was a former mm. Republican staffer on the Hill for something like over 25 years, I think. The book is literally called The Deep State, The Fall of the Constitution and the Rise of a Shadow Government. You know, it's a book that's really focused on institutions and how those institutions evolve and, again, the imperatives that those institutions follow. And I think he really outlines quite well um, this story about how the this shadow government, I guess, or deep state or whatever you want to call it, the, the, the stuff that orbits the security services, how it has kind of become detached from the concerns of, like, actual government. Like, it exists – there, it has an autonomous – logic of its own. And that logic drives a lot of what actually goes on in Washington, a lot of what Washington chooses to do. So anyway, I, I just wanted do to... Do you mean, th- I, I want to unpack that because I think it's very important. Do you mean in terms of like what it what it does in terms of foreign policy or what it does in terms of contracting or what it does I think in, in, bo- of- in, in all of those terms, right? So for example, I mean, one of the things he talks about a lot is contracting and how the, you know, these, how government contractors have benefited hugely from this ex- expansion of of the security state um, you know Lockheed Martin obviously Boeing I mean all these all these organizations that sort of feed out of this trough have sure. been ad- benefited hugely from it Betsy DeVos's brother right as the founder of Blackwater uh, that's correct Eric Prince yes uh, evil Marys <laughs> so so all of that stuff is like um, all these things are connected right and and when those um, when, when those organizations, right, when they uh, produce, you know, armaments or whatever, or technology systems for, for the government, like, the, when, when you are given a tool, the natural inclination is to use it. I think that a lot people have this notion, I think, that there are these, like, nefarious goblins sitting at the top of like our power structure and there definitely are nefarious people at at the top Uh, like probably most people who sit at the top are nefarious to some degree but that they're like they're issuing these direct orders like to do all these awful evil things and while direct orders definitely get issued what happens much more often is a lot more prosaic in that Mm. the institutions that are built up around these issues of safety and quote-unquote defense uh such as it is and um they acquire like an internal logic that that not only like justifies their own perpetuation but justifies like that they have to do something like we have a military and that military's job is to do stuff we have a investigative bureau and that investigative bureau's job is to like investigate people and independent of any specific individual who is who is enmeshed in this, like the logic of these institutions just draws them to continue doing what they're doing and to justify like the actions that they take on the basis of self-preservation. So it's, it's less protocols of the elders of Zion with some like cabal at the top making wicked orders. Although again, sometimes, but it's, it's much more this type of, uh, this is interesting because this argument seems to parallel a guy who I know you, you don't love Jonathan Rauch his first book, Demosclerosis, which talks about one of the problems of government is is precisely this, that you have this sort of sclerotic process by which agencies 
cannot shrink and cannot deviate from their mission and solely exist to perpetuate funding, sometimes because there are these convenient commercial relationships, and you pointed to the military contracting, but other times just because you know, there, there's an agency that employs hundreds of thousands of people. They've done, oh, that's they've right. Done this for I, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, my other, like, dislike of Jonathan Rauch notwithstanding, like, I think that's a perfectly valid point. Anyway, I wanted to just throw this this book out there. That's some, This is something I'm reading right now. Uh, I think it's interesting. I think it sheds a lot of light on the way that these institutions interact and uh, interoperate within, like, within themselves and, mm. the, like, the logic that drives them. And I think that's, I mean, it's a really good point. It does tie back to our earlier piece on the elites, because um, to the extent that there's an American deep state, right, it doesn't operate extrajudicially or extra legally, as we've talked about, or or it moderates its extra legal operation domestically. But what it really does is perpetuate the, the control of areas of the state that traditionally haven't had much democratic interaction by a body that is tied into certainly people with a lot of wealth but again there, there's no democratic oversight um, and and I think one of the things that is a real challenge to try and move past that if we do is agency reform of agencies that are very hard to have de- democratic oversight of that actually does I think inject some more visibility into process and tries to strip away some of those sort of convenient um We'll reuse the epiphytic term, epiphytic relationships with um, large parts of the military industrial complex. And I, I mean, I think it's it's interesting to think about Eisenhower, who, of course, warned about the military industrial complex existing. You know, he sort of foresaw the Cold War unfolding in his I mean, his farewell address, I think, is, is second only to Washington's in terms of importance and maybe also being ignored by later uh, U.S. statesmen. But um, he saw it happening. And, and we've done Nothing but, I think, um, inflict uh, on ourselves basically what Eisenhower was warning about. Talking about, I think, especially an agency like the CIA, I think it's very difficult because on the one hand, uh, this is, again, something that, you know, quite wisely they've chose to mostly act outside of the constitutional borders. And I mean borders both in the physical and sort of the legal sense. Mm. Uh, so a lot of the stuff that, you know, the CIA does is just invisible by virtue of not being in the country and not being open to disclosure. And the problem with, with that is, you know, like you can, you can I think, reasonably argue that, okay, countries need spy services and whatever. Like that's a separate discussion. But I think you can also say – you can also have – ask yourself the question of what do they need these agencies for? Like, what do we want these agencies to actually do? And asking that question means actually having a discussion, presumably within the legislative bodies, about what we want these agencies to actually deliver to us. Whereas the current way that we interact with them is we say, okay, like here, here's the CIA, and it's going to... Uh, it's, it's going to just do stuff. Like, what does it do? Nobody really knows. I mean, maybe some people are kind of curious about it, but they don't spend a lot of time. Uh, but, you know, they're maybe bound, like, because they're on the House Intelligence Committee or the Senate Intelligence Committee or whatever. Um, and so they can't really talk about it. But other than those people, like, nobody really takes a particular interest in yeah. it. And so these agencies just left to do whatever they want until something happens where, you know, like, the executive leans on them for you know, to manufacture intelligence like like occurred in, you know, in the run up to Iraq. But for the most part, we don't really have any conversation like nationally about like, what do we want these people to do? Um, And I think that that's something that is really detrimental. Like we should be having that conversation. We should be asking ourselves what we want the CIA to do, what we want the FBI to do. And uh, actually, like, get people to take positions on this. Because right now, it's all too easy to just say, like, oh, yeah, of course we trust the security services. Like, why wouldn't we? And maybe one salutary, I'm hoping that one salutary, like, possibility for salutary outcome from all this is that maybe we get people asking more of these questions. Um, Whether that happens or not, I don't know, but I'm hoping for it. Hopefully. I mean, I I guess I would say... Yet again, this is a place where it looks like entrenching um, these powers within the executive may be problematic. I mean, it would be very interesting. You could imagine um, intelligence services that by that constitutionally were required to report up 
um, to the legislature, for example. This would be a vastly different system because suddenly those House and Senate oversight committees would would have much more power and it would be injected in the democratic process. Or similarly, you could see a law enforcement power instead of being reserved to the executive, but actually placed inside the judiciary. Now, maybe these were in the breach a bit at the founding, um, but because the executive certainly now as exists was never envisioned in, in the scope it was at the founding. But by placing these things into the executive and then depoliticizing them, they've they've had the opportunity to turn out exactly as Jerry's described. I mean, because they don't appear as a matter of partisan politics, I mean, Comey's FBI director through successive administrations, the CIA sort of exists and does what the CIA does through successive administrations. Um, because they're not a topic of, of politics, um, they instead act in the interest of um, a sort of certainly undemocratic and and oftentimes, unfortunately, sort of commercially oligarchic uh, set of of uh, of lim- very limited uh, actors as opposed to the broader sort of political scope. Okay, so on that uh, note, thanks for listening, finders, and thanks, Jerry, and thanks as always to our talented engineer, Greg Young. And next time, join us as we talk about the left liberal split. Um, and organizing, especially in advance of 2018. Thank you.